And I've been, I think I've done two. One wasn't enough for me. I needed to go a second time around just to fill in the gaps, of which there were many. Um, so I highly recommend that you sign up. It's a, it's a good, good thing. Please, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 11. You're going to need your journals this morning. We're going to do some, uh, some solid teaching through Mark chapter 11. Uh, while you get there... Um, I've been reflecting a lot this week and certainly been prompted by some events that have happened both in the church and around the church about the, uh, the increasing um, levels of stress and anxiety that I believe that we as a society uh, struggle with. It's, it's been long discussed that stress and anxiety is the biggest killer um, in terms of the knock-on effects that it has in in our lives, and it's certainly something that I have uh, struggled with in the past, the two years to the month. Um, I actually took a, a, a long time off because of adrenal, uh, I burnt my adrenal gland out, uh, which, as I've said many times before, I didn't even know I had an adrenal gland, never mind one that I could, could burn out. Um, but as a result of overwork and stress and various other things, God really used that time though, and I'm very grateful that he did so because I recovered actually uh, remarkably quickly because it can take 18 months to two years to actually recover your adrenal gland. Uh, I'm grateful for the way that God um, used it because what it did is, is it took me from a place as a pastor and as a, as a, as a, um, a man where I had been for um, 20 years extremely driven uh, very, very um, ambitious, I guess, in many ways, from a young age, always being encouraged to, to be the best, to get the best grades, to get the best job, and, and from a very early age, whether it be starting a business or becoming a young school administrator, taking my master's, you know, by the time I was in my mid-twenties, you know, it was just drive, 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 then coming over to Vancouver and becoming a director in an independent school on the mainland. And I say all this not to boast, actually to do the opposite, because what it was creating inside of me was this solid belief that I am what I did and also uh, that, that my success, my fulfillment and purpose in life was being fulfilled by what I do and who I am and, and the opportunities that I created for myself as well as followed through. But what was happening is it was decaying my soul and my body and my heart. And I can say now in front of my wife and my one kid who's, oh, he's at the back, he's still here. Uh, I have four children all together, but I can say that I am a completely different and changed man as a result of God allowing me to go through this period, uh, a spiritual kick up the jacksy in many ways, um, to say, hang on, this isn't the way life is meant to be lived. The stress and anxiety that your drivenness or your drive was creating in me was, was just, it was, it was killing me. It was killing me. And I just did a very quick look at some of the latest um, findings when it comes to stress. And they're saying the top stresses in life uh, uh, and I don't know if this is in order or not, but it would be the job or the profession, money, health, relationships. A new one that is rapidly increasing is what they call media overload, the desperation to be, uh, to be popular through media, but also the addiction towards media as well. And this results not just 
All these different factors, the job, the money, the health, relationships, these stresses create anger, nervousness, crying, a lack of energy, fatigue, headaches, stomach problems, teeth grinding, um, overeating, dizziness, and then the list goes on through the other ways that the body slowly breaks down. There has to be a better way. And And a quick look around what our culture would offer in terms of how to deal with this stress, it's very much based on, well, you need to stop this or that or not do that anymore and put that down and don't go there. And and it's all about the let's just stop. Let's just slow down. And there is a huge amount of good wisdom in that. And yet, for somebody of my character, that doesn't work. Because the, I, I struggled, uh, as, and I've only been a pastor here for the last six years, but my day off is Monday. Uh, but I would feel guilty about taking a day off on Monday because I was just like, well, I've got to do something, so I might as well do church stuff. So the idea of stopping and slowing down was incredibly difficult for me until God eventually just said, okay, I'm going to make you lie down by still waters. And that's, that's what he did. So the stopping is all very well. But what happens if you're not wired like that? You know, maybe you're similar to me that you have a stress, you have a fatigue, you have an anxiety, and maybe it's just an effort for you to get up in the morning, to face the day. For somebody to come along, well-meaning as it may be, and good advice as it could be, just to say, well, just stop, isn't helpful. See, Christianity, more than anything else, makes massive statements about life change and transformation. It, it, it makes large promises that if it doesn't fulfill these large promises, then we have to ask ourselves, why Christianity? Why Jesus? Why God? Because God is a transforming God. We've just been singing about how He is our provider and the different names of God. And, and we declare as Christians that God changes, He transforms. And yet I think sometimes there's a disjoint between what we believe and yet what we experience. And that's a lot of what Set Free is about. It's about actually drilling into what it is that is maybe holding us back from really feeling and living out the promise of God. That God is a dwelling place, not just some hypothetical add-on to our lives. And I believe part of the reason that young adults and millennials especially struggle with the idea of God is that the tangible difference that God can make in life is actually not seen. Next week we're going to be jumping into uh, some pretty significant apologetics, arguments if you like, because chapter 12 is just Jesus on the assault. He's going after stuff skeptics and cultural issues and so if you're wrestling with some big questions and arguments in your mind next week is for you this week is about how do we actually see life transformation that declares the love and the power of God to our community and friends that people would kind of go wow that that is different I can't find that in chapters I can't find that in the self-help section I can't find that in my yoga class I can't find that in my gym There's something different about that. That's what this chapter 11 in its essence is about. Finding peace 
finding rest. So rest sounds good. Rest is always good. And so today, that is what we're going to focus on. The, are, we just, are we actually changing or are we just staying busy? In the hope that somehow we'll be able to afford one day the change. Because here's the lie. Please listen. This is a lie that many of us believe. If I can just work harder and get to a certain level of income, then I will be able to rest. Absolute garbage. It doesn't work like that. And you know it. Because this idea of being able to get to a level of income where you can just suddenly fly fish, collect stamps, and get shells and live in Mexico for the rest of your life is just so far from the way that we are all wired as people, not just as Christians. So this level of income, if I can just work hard to get to this level, then I will find rest, is an absolute lie. Rest comes first. That's the promise of God. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 11, and the first thing that we're going to look at is Jesus and the cult, not occult, cult. Did I say that right, Canadian? How do you Canadians say it? Cult. Okay. Mark chapter 11, verse 7. And they brought the cult to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Let me just stop there for a second. The, this, this cult is, is likely, could be a small donkey. There's nothing impressive. There's nothing significant about this animal at all. In verse 8, and many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. I want you to remember there that they are singing about their father David. See, Jesus here... What this whole scenario is about is pressing home a point. He's forcing an issue. And the issue he's forcing is simply this. He's coming into a city like a king, and the people are responding to him like he's a king. The Messiah, the promised one. He's coming into the city declaring, I am king, but there is something wrong with the scene. And it's what he's riding on. You see, the people would know that a king would come into a city declaring their kingship, riding on a magnificent war horse, declaring their own magnificence and majesty and strength and power. It would be an impressive, wow sight. But Jesus comes almost comically on a little donkey. There's this, hang on a second. It's like, Hosanna, Hosanna. Oh, is that a donkey? You know, it's like the equivalent. You want to see somebody coming in in a stretched Escalade or blacked out windows. Like, you know, the kind of the, uh, the several cars. What do you call that when the, when the president comes in? The motorade, right? Mo- motor, what, what? Motorcade. Thank you, John. You know, that's how a president comes in. That's how it came. This, this is the equivalent of a, of a president coming in in a 2001 Toyota Corolla. You know, like, something, sorry, Luke. There's something, there's something not right about that. You can pimp that thing up if you want. It's still a Toyota Corolla. Where's the Escalade? What is Jesus forcing here? Listen to this. This is really important. 
Because before we get to the rest, we need to understand the character of Jesus. What he's forcing is this. I am a king. Not in the kingly way that you think. I come as king, but not in the way you think. He's declaring a juxtaposition between his character. I am king, but not in your way. You see, in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5, John is having this vision and he says this, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He's saying, look, this king, this Jesus is, is a lion. And between the throne and the four living creatures, John says, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. See, straight away we have a, a differing of images. John is expecting to see a lion. What he sees is a lamb. You see, Jesus comes as a king and yet has the character of a king and a lamb, a a lion and a lamb. You see, a lion is strength, it's majesty, it's impressive, it's powerful, it's splendid, it's, it's strong. And then you have this lamb that is meek and quiet and gentle and accessible and approachable. Many years ago, Sarah and I were traveling to a conference in a place called Caister in, in the uh, southeast of England. And it had been a long drive, and we were driving with some close friends of ours, and, and, the, and Catherine was a, uh, w- was a vegetarian, very, um, kind of even before, this is, this is almost 30, 25 years ago, before it became, it was really cool to be a vegetarian, she was very committed to being vegetarian because of the principle of it. So you need to remember that about her. And we're driving along and we got stuck in some traffic, no surprise there in Britain, and we're stuck and we're crawling along and so then we start looking and we start talking about the area and, and then we come alongside a farm um, and, and, and there's, this, there's this sign in the middle of the field that horrified Catherine and made the rest of us laugh because this sign said, um, there's, by the way, before I get to the sign, there's nothing better in Britain. I know, I know British people get made fun of when it comes to the food. But I tell you what, there's something about a rack of lamb and mint sauce. It's amazing. So there's this sign that says, lamb for sale. Brilliant. Pick your own. And around the sign are little lambs jumping around. And I'm like, look at this sign. I am not, I'm not joking, am I, love? It was hilariously wrong. Like, pick your own. I'll have that really cute one in the corner. No, not that one. I want that one. The one that's, because that's, lambs always find high ground. Have you noticed that? They always want to be higher than, the one that's stood all confident and arrogant on top of the little mound of soil, I'll have that one. There you go. Or whatever it is they do. I don't know. Maybe they give you a gun. You can pick off your own. I'll stop. But there's something really, is there any, I'm trying to think of an animal as I was preparing this that is more gentle and lovely looking than a lamb. 
There's nothing about a lamb that makes you go, oh, nothing. In fact, the opposite is the case. You want to you stroke it. You want to be close to it. And so you have Jesus who's declaring his lionhood, if you like, his kingship, while at the same time, because of the, what he was riding on, saying, I am actually approachable. Jesus is both lion and lamb. Lion and lamb. Majesty, strength, power, sovereignty, magnificence, raw energy and and just inapproachable in many ways. And yet at the same time, he is accessible and gentle and, and meek. And we think meek is a bad thing. Actually, meek is a strong and powerful word. We'll come to it later. And he's both. Where do you get this combination in our world? You don't have a combination of strength and and meekness in our world. So what's this got to do with me and my stressful week, Glenn? Number two, Jesus and the sword. Jesus and the sword. Mark chapter 11, verse 15, we carry on. And they came to Jerusalem and entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So now, now it's the lion. You see that? So we have the lamb. Now we have the lion. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, it is, not writ- is it not written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him. Because the crowd was astonished at his teaching, and when evening came, they went out of the city. Now, I've preached before on the court and the temple, and and I'm sure you all remember the sermon very vividly. Um, But you have to go through what's called the court of the Gentiles in order to get into the actual temple that was in the center. And, And because it's Passover, there are thousands of people doing business in this court of Gentiles. They're buying and selling sacrificial lambs and different animals ready for the sacrifices that needed to happen at this time of year in Passover. Josephus, the historian, said in one year there were 25,000 sacrifices bought, sold, and sacrificed. Animals, I should say, bought and sold for sacrificial reasons in one week. This place is manic. And Jesus comes along and he is the lion. And I've described before, just imagine the strength and power that it would be needed to empty this place that is thriving with different people buying and selling. This is Jesus in the house. The lion comes by sheer energy and will. He empties the place, declaring this place should be the place of prayer, not business. Jesus starts throwing them out and they're shocked and the scribes and the Pharisees are horrified because by throwing them out, he's actually declaring, you do not need this sacrificial system. Is it possible that for us, in order for us to really enjoy the peace and the rest of God as Christians, that we need to get to things like set free so that the place can be cleared out a bit? We get filled up with stuff that actually doesn't belong and we think in that there is rest, whereas it's beyond that that is the rest. So what's this history? You need to understand the history of what's going on here to really appreciate the rest that I'm getting to. 
See, the Garden of Eden right at the beginning was this beautiful sanctuary of rest. It was the presence of God. It's where God and mankind came together and it was an incredible place. And then it lost its sanctuary, its rest, when mankind decided it no longer needed God. In fact, they wanted to base their lives on other things outside of God. And they were shut out, literally shut out from the rest and sanctuary and presence and peace of God. And in Genesis 3 and verse 24, referring to God, it says, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. See, this is what's happening here. Jesus comes into the temple, and he's clearing out the sacrificial system that you need to go through in order to get to the rest, the temple, the presence of God. And what he's doing is he's clearing out the sacrifices because right at the beginning, what God did is by stopping mankind getting back into the sanctuary, he set up this flaming sword and declared there is no way past. You are destined to stay outside unless you get past that sword. There's no way into the presence of God. There's no way into the rest. There's no way into the sanctuary. You can be as busy as you like in that court. You can be as busy as you like in your life. You can be hardworking. You can earn your money. You can be a great dad, a great mom, whatever it might be. You can do all those things, but it will always be outside of the true rest, the true peace, unless you go past the sword. See, the problem our world has is that we build our lives on power and possessions and popularity. We believe in that there is rest and peace. And by doing so, we trample on one another and there's death, there's war, there's poverty, there's disease, there's this vacuum that gets filled in because what we're doing is we're worshiping, as we heard last week, the idea that we can find rest and peace in these things, whereas it's actually beyond these things once these things have been removed. So one of the accusations, I would say, that Christianity has is that, well, why doesn't doesn't God just forgive everything and let us in? Remove the sword, bring us into the rest. If God is so loving, why doesn't he just forgive everybody? Makes no sense. That's what I would do. Really? Somebody really wrongs you, really abuses you, and some of you may be too young yet for that to have happened really lets you down, harmed you perhaps physically, mentally, emotionally. Maybe you've had a crime committed against you. Maybe the crime is not a literal crime as our society sees, but a crime of the heart or the soul in your own family. Something has happened that has significantly wronged you. And then somebody comes along and goes, why don't you just, why don't you just let it go? They said, Sorry. If the person who committed this crime to you comes and says, Hey, I'm sorry. Let's just forget it and move on. Is it petty? Is it bitterness? Is it vengeance to say, Actually, no. That's not good enough. You can't just come waltzing back into my life and saying sorry, thinking that that is going to deal with it all. There has to be more. 
sorry isn't enough. Something more is required. Some kind of payment often has to be made. We love the idea of justice. We think it's a good thing as long as it's not applied to us. So why is it that God does not just forgive? Because it's wrong. There has to be some payment. There has to be the sword that's gotten past. There there has to be some justice. So what God did in order for people to be able to get past the sword is he set up a sacrificial system. And you can read about it in Leviticus. It actually gets quoted a lot in our culture when it comes to things about same-sex relationships or tattoos or long hair or whatever you want. All it says, or slavery. It says this in Leviticus. Whereas actually any one of those things, you actually look at what the whole scripture says, it's often very different. But the Levitical law is put into place in order for people to get back into the presence of God, the sacrificial system. There had to be a sacrifice. There had to be justice to get past the sword. And so God said, well, well, one day every year called Yom Kippur, the day it was referred to, the high priest could go past the sword into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifices on behalf of the nation so that you can have the peace and rest of God upon your life, which is where the Passover comes from. So the, the, the temple used to be a tent in their early history. And so once a year, the high priest who was chosen by God would prepare himself vigorously to go into the Holy of Holies and make this sacrifice on behalf of the people so that the people could experience rest and peace and sanctuary again. There had to be somebody who went past the sword. And so now in Jesus' time... This is still the practice. This was still the practice at Passover. This holy of holies, this place beyond the court, beyond the busyness, was this rest and sanctuary. And the only way into it was to go past something called the veil. The veil was a large, we would look at it and think it looked like a wall, actually. It was 60 foot high, which by my estimation, probably, Lyndon, you'd be good at this. I'm guessing this would be, I don't know. 40 foot? No? How much? 24 foot. Really? Okay. So, 24 foot. That was very accurate. We're going to test Lyndon's accuracy out later if anybody happens to have a measuring rod. 60 foot high this veil was and 4 inches thick. It was intricately sewn to a thickness where it was rigid in beautiful, multicolored uh, threads. It was a magnificent thing, and it was called the veil. The word veil literally means divide, separate, flaming sword. In fact, the color of it symbolized the flaming sword, fire. You have to get past that into the Holy of Holies. Once a year, the high priest would do that but you were blocked into the presence and the sanctuary and the peace of God. The presence of God was beyond it. So this man on Yom Kippur, the day would go beyond it. In Hebrews 9 verse 7, it says, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself for the unintentional sins of the people. There has to be a way past the sword. 
And it is not the sacrificial system. It is not the busyness. It's not everything that we focus on as being the answer to get into the sanctuary. Jesus says, no, it's not that way. It's beyond the veil. How do you get past the veil? Scriptures tell us that these sacrifices were partial and incomplete. They had to do it every year. And all through the Old Testament, there is this person called the Messiah mentioned. This person was going to come and he was going to come in his magnificence. Somebody who will liberate and bring peace. And they thought it was political peace. They thought they were going to be liberated from the, uh, from the treachery of the Romans. But Jesus came as Messiah. King, but not as they thought. He was going to bring them peace, not outside peace, but internal peace. Rest. Sanctuary. How? He was going to go beyond the sword. He was going to be the sacrifices of sacrifices. He was going to give his life in ransom, in payment for the justice that is required in order for us to be able to get into the sanctuary for the peace, the rest. And that is why, friends, when Jesus actually shouted, it is finished on the cross, the veil, history tells us, not just the scriptures, history tells us outside of the Bible is ripped in two. Not from the bottom, because it is conceivable that that is possible. If you get something strong enough pulling in opposite directions far enough, then it is possible for the curtain to be ripped, even though it is four inches thick. But we're told that it's actually ripped from the top to the bottom. No man can do that. In Hebrews 9, verse 11, it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, they're referring to the temple, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, an ultimate rest. An ultimate peace. Jesus becomes the temple. That's why he had to be the lion and the lamb. He comes with strength, but he comes as a sacrifice. And then he invites us to the rest and the presence and the power of God. And he says, the sacrifices are obsolete. You don't need to work anymore. Let's get rid of that. Because it doesn't work. There's nothing we can do in order to get into that peace and sanctuary and rest that we're created for in Christ. There's nothing you can do to find that eternal rest that you are seeking. You can set things up, you can kid yourselves for a while, but ultimately it's always going to be incomplete. It's always going to fail, which is why Jesus comes and clears the temple and says, this is a place of prayer. That's how you approach God. I'm going to go beyond the veil. I'm going to secure the ultimate sacrifice for you so you can come into the veil. You can come past the veil. You can have that sanctuary, that peace and that rest. That's the power of Jesus Christ. And then this same power, he says, you can have. So friends, 2017, no matter what is going on in your life, no matter what, is, uh, what seems to be holding you back, pulling you down, giving you anxiety and stress, Jesus Christ says, come and I will give you rest. 
Now, please hear me. I understand from experience that anxiety can actually come in a medical form. And I am not condoning just ignoring that and just saying, you know, ignoring your doctor's wishes or your doctor's advice. But let me tell you something far more significant. A peace can come into your life through Jesus Christ. And then we have this really intriguing inclusion in this chapter. Remember, Mark did not write things chronologically. He wrote them thematically. So we have this Jesus coming into the city as a lion and a lamb. Then we have this temple and this uh, story where Jesus is shown as the lamb and also the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, sorry, as the lion and then the ultimate sacrifice as the lamb. And then we have this intriguing story about a fig tree in the middle. Now, if it's not chronological, then we have to look at this story and go, well, how does it fit? And so Jesus says, and Jesus in the lack of figs says this, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. So Jesus comes along and he's clearly having a bad day because there's a fig tree that is out of season but is looking for fruit and there is no fruit, so he curses it. May no one eat a fruit from you again. What was Jesus doing? See, Jesus is giving us a parable. He's actually declaring, Bible commentaries would tell us, and Bible scholars and and the weight of evidence would say this, is that Jesus is cursing the fig tree because the fig tree is not producing the fruit that it was created to produce. Even out of season, you can actually, there's little buds that fig trees apparently produce that you can eat. In fact, they were very popular with travelers. And so this fig tree is not producing what it was created to produce. He cleared the temple for not being aligned to its original purpose. You see, Jesus brings change. The temple is filled with religious, empty activity. There's no spirituality. It's just no one is praying. Everybody's just busy thinking that somehow they're going to find rest and peace in their busyness. And Jesus comes along and clears it out. He comes along with a fig tree and clears it out because it is not fulfilling its original purpose. So what does this have to do with my stress? I can declare to you with a lot of certainty from experience and from the Bible that Jesus is not interested in our busyness and activity. Life doesn't seem to give us back rest and peace through busyness and activity. Many of you are young and have these wonderful hopes that we want to celebrate and, and encourage and champion you in that, that this idea that all th- these incredible things are possible with the skills and the talents that you have. But let me tell you, from experience, and those who are a little bit further down the line would say this, you are not going to find the peace and the rest that you think you are in your busyness and activity. In fact, you will feel cursed. More cursed than the fig tree. You'll believe the lie that ultimately will just keep you busy in the court of the Gentiles rather than finding peace in the Holy of Holies. Because once you find that peace, your busyness and activity becomes all the more glorious and wonderful. Because you're free. You don't rely on it to give you peace, but you can enjoy it without relying on it. See, Jesus came. He died. He filled 
and he aligns us back to where we should be. So are you actually experiencing daily that peace and sanctuary and rest that only Christ can bring? And is that peace and rest that his promises for us to have, is it actually causing us to change? Like if you're anxious, are you becoming more peaceful? If you're angry, are you becoming less reactive? If you're fearful, are you becoming more secure? Or is it that you're just becoming more controlling? If you're self-centered, then are you becoming more giving? You see, Christianity is about transformation. It's about becoming more, about producing more fruit. That peace and rest we find in Christ gives us the liberation to work hard and enjoy those things that he's given us, but also it changes us. Are you changing or are you just busy? Do you see them? Do you sense them? Do the people who love you around you see that you are changing and, and, and getting more peace and more rest? You see, remember that you have to go through the court of prayer in order to find the peace and rest. So you might be saying, okay, Glenn, I, I want peace and rest. And I am caught up in the court of the Gentiles. I'm caught up in this busyness. And I think you're right. I have believed the lie that rest and peace will be found when I can just get the busyness out of the way by earning more money. I'll find the rest. I, I, think, I think I think that. So how, how do I get rid of that thought? How do I find that peace and rest? How do I live in it? Because the Bible talks about dwelling in it, like camping in it. Literally, that's what it means. You set your world in the rest and sanctuary and peace of God and everything else is framed by it. I want that. There's nothing about that, Glenn, that I'm disagreeing with. It's not like you're preaching on Calvinism and predestination that I'm going to struggle with. I, I want it. Let's do it. How does this scripture tell us that we're going to find that? Jesus said this place should be a place of prayer. This court of the Gentiles was a place of self-reflection, examination, in fact, if you look at the day historically in the Old Testament, what actually happened is the whole nation would surround the tent, the temple, and they would mourn. They would be on the floor, face down, mourning for their sin, confessing to their God, praying. That's how they attached, listen, attached themselves to what was happening in the tent. But we have something better. We don't have to be outside. God says, come in. Have it here. But there's still prayer. There's still confession. There's still self-examination. In fact, we're going to come to communion in a minute. And, and the scriptures in 1 Corinthians talk about examining yourself. So here's what we do in our culture. We don't. We, we resist the idea of confession and prayer. 
We resist the idea of maybe coming and positioning ourselves when we have prayer at the end of the service, coming to get prayer. We, we don't. We don't like to. We don't put the time aside. We don't get up that little bit earlier to spend time with the Bible and, and God and pray and journal and confess. We don't self-reflect. And why don't we do that? Because I don't think we fully appreciate how powerful that rest and peace actually is and how tangible it is and how much it can actually change our lives because I think if we grasp that, we would prioritize prayer. We'd prioritize confession. We'd prioritize being with God if we really believed the promise of the Bible. And I could get very red-faced and very enthusiastic and passionate about how wonderful the presence and peace and rest of God is and how we should be living in it and we should pray more in order for us to seek God because he says, as you seek me out, I will seek you out. And there's this beautiful communion. We're going to celebrate everything that Christ did on the cross through these elements. In just a minute, his bread, his bread, his body broken for us, the, the wine, his blood shed for us, taking the punishment going under the sword, taking the sword so that we could have access. We're going to celebrate that. And I could get very passionate about that. And it still feel empty to you. The driven Glenn would want to push and push and push you. Be the Holy Spirit, in other words. And what I'm realizing is, is that only comes by revelation by God himself drawing us and wooing us to himself. But what I can do is I can point at lives. I can point at different people. I won't specifically. And I can say, if you want to know what peace and rest actually looks like through the darkest of times, look at that life. You don't find that. You don't find that lion and lamb testimony in the world that strength and gentleness that is found in Christians, you don't find it in the world. I could, they're not here so I can embarrass them. (laughs) I could point at the Bennets saying lion, lamb, strength and gentleness, faith in desperate darkness. Where do you find that? You find that in the sanctuary through much prayer and confession and self-examination because I can tell you you prepare for the dark times in the light times it's in the times when you are not going through the greatest of challenges that you prepare yourself for the greatest of challenges that makes sense when you're in the midst of it you can still find him and it's hard and he is still there to be found but can I tell you if you find it in the good times that when the tough times come you can sense that peace and presence because you've been living in the tent not just jumping into it when it gets tough but it starts with prayer it starts with confession at the beginning of the year, and I'm going to finish with this, um, Sarah and I were praying just before I actually went in for surgery, and we were, we were praying, and, and we had a, a Willow One prayer meeting that are brilliant, by the way, and I really encourage you to come. We've got one at the end of May, last Monday of May, 
um, and we're actually doing it joint with 33 um, in May. But I was really convicted to pray that God would fulfill the prayer that Paul prayed in Ephesians, that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that they might know the calling that he has given them. And that would, God would change lives and God would transform and there would be a pulling together of prayer in this church. This morning, uh, we started praying at nine and um, through different comings and goings, I reckon maybe a dozen to 15 people joined us in and out. Do you know what's great? It's people who are serving as ushers come in and pray for a bit and then they go usher. I like that. So I'm just going to get in for a bit and then I'm going to go and do the job that God's called me to do this morning. It was a sanctuary. It was beautiful. God's doing something in our church in prayer and I'm excited about it. And that's where all the rest and the peace starts. So maybe today as we come to the communion and as we always do, as Sarah leads with the band, you can come and you can take. If you believe that Jesus is your Lord and you have confessed and you are a Christian, then you are welcome to come and take the bread and the juice. And Paul says, uh, reminds us that Jesus said, remember, think, examine. And maybe this rest and peace can start with you this morning, for you this morning. We can just push aside some of the busyness and the activity and say, Lord, I just, I just want to be in your sanctuary. And David said in Psalm 27, just one thing do I want, that I can be in the house of the Lord. One thing do I need? I want to be in the peace and presence and sanctuary of the Lord. And, and I have a sense, friends, that's the one thing we need as well. Let's pray.